I don't trust my balancing act there. That's going to be, that's going to end treacherously. I'm just going to set that on the ground. Well, first service, well done. You got the clapping in. Normally that's a second service thing. And I applaud you on getting the clapping right. Um, and I also, church, want to say something. Um, summer is usually the time of year where we go, okay, Lord, we're believing that you'll help cover some of the, the space that we missed, that we came up short at another part of the year in our tithes and offerings. We just believe in God to come through. People are traveling and things like that. Can I tell you that June was our strongest giving month of the year so far? Um, we, we surpassed uh, the, the, the budget that our, our board had put together. I was um, <laughs> just blown away at church, your faithfulness, but also we've just seen the attendance of this church has been through already through this year beyond what it's been since I can remember. Um, it's been incredible to see people hungry for the Lord, um, pursuing God, but also being themselves missionaries to their world around them, sharing the good news of what Jesus has done and also what God is doing in this church. And so it's just exciting to see. Um, I'm excited to add even more chairs to the room and just see what God is going to do as we get ready to step into fall. And all the kids said, boo, no school. Well, um, we are going into our next minor prophet here. We've got a few left as we finish out August, and I'm really excited about the series that's going to follow this. But this series still has a lot of good stuff left. And today we are talking about the prophet Joel. Joel. Now, uh, Joel is somewhat of an enigma in terms of his historical context that he lived in. Um, Historians and theologians can't fully arrive and agree on when exactly he even lived. Um, Can you imagine someone not knowing, like, within about 500 years of when you lived? That's roughly the space of when kind of the discussion is of when did Joel live. Uh, Some people think that he lived around the 8th century B.C. Some people move it all the way up to the 9th century B.C. Some people move it all the way up to the 4th century B.C. So he could have lived anywhere in that span. The reason it's so difficult is uh, Joel is a book of kind of poetry. And so he doesn't mention any particular kings. He doesn't mention uh, any particular major historical event happening specifically that we can actually pinpoint. Uh, Nor is Joel himself mentioned in any historical book like the books of Kings or Chronicles. He's not mentioned there. He's quoted by like Peter on the day of Pentecost. He says, in the last days I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. You know that verse? That's from the book of Joel. He's quoted, but yet we don't know when exactly this happened. So he's kind of an enigma in terms of when it happened. So some people, the people that say the older date makes sense, the ninth, nine centuries before Christ, say that, that that date makes sense to them because he seems to kind of talk about and allude to uh, the, the, the fall of Israel when Assyria comes. And so you'll see here Joel with a question mark. A lot, a lot of people believe he's around the, the ninth century there. Um, prophesying about when Assyria would attack because they say that you can kind of derive that other people who have the later date that they ascribe to say that he probably prophesied later because he actually references other prophets that it, it would seem uh, prophets uh, that such as uh, Amos Isaiah and Zephaniah so if you look back they're saying well if he's referencing them he has to live after them and so there's really a discussion on when exactly Joel lived but um, uh, the 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 core thing we pull out of Joel is not going to be what exact moment in time it happened, but what is God trying to tell us through this prophet? And what was the prophet telling Israel in this time? So, so Joel's call to Israel is primarily a call to repentance. He never accuses Israel of any particular sin. He doesn't say, you are doing this thus, 
but he still calls them to repentance. So um, uh, it would seem that he's inferring you should already know what you're doing wrong based on what the other prophets have said. You should already know you've got things wrong, so repent. And so this is what he, he drives at. So if you have your Bibles, open them with me to the book of Joel. Chapter 1 will be in verse 1. Um, if, uh, if you have the Bible app, you can follow along with us there. We're going to read verses 1 through 4 here. The Lord gave this message to Joel, son of Pethuel. Hear this, you leaders of the people. Listen, all who live in the land. In all of your history, has anything like this happened before? Tell your children to come, uh, tell your children about it in the years to come, and let your children tell their children. Pass the story down from generation to generation. After the cutting locusts finished eating the crops, the swarming locusts took what was left. Then after them came the hopping locusts, and then the stripping locusts too. So. If there is a theme we could kind of put these, uh, these three chapters of Joel into, it would be grasshoppers. Joel talks a lot about grasshoppers. Uh, if you were to use one word to summarize Joel other than repentance, it would be grasshoppers, locusts. Now, this isn't the grasshoppers we have around here. Uh, my kids, we, we got home from a road trip the other day, and we had not unpacked a single bag from the car until Judah was like, I caught a grasshopper. I don't know. He's just like Mr. Catch something, you know. And so we have these little grasshoppers that hop around here. But this is locusts, and they're not like what we have here. They would um, appear seemingly out of nowhere in these massive hordes, these clouds. Um, and we don't really understand that in our, you know, in, in our world today. I was walking through a field the other day, and you could just see them hopping all over the place in front of me. But they're not really that big a problem. About four years ago in Las Vegas, uh, there was this event that happened with grasshoppers. And I've got a video to show you. But I got in trouble last time I showed an insect video, uh, a bug video. And, and, and I, I had people be like, gross, you didn't warn us. So there are bugs in this video, okay? So um, here's a little taste of what uh, uh, bugs uh, and a horde of them showing up looks like in our modern context. That's gross. Um, so, uh, yeah, kind of an interesting thing, how they seemingly come out of nowhere. Even with our, you know, all of our modern technology and stuff, in a lot of ways, people are like, where did this come from? This was unexpected. And so these uh, locusts uh, in biblical times, were, like I said, 
Unlike these creepy, crawly, yet fairly harmless grasshoppers, these locust swarms were a real problem because the locusts were about twice the size of these grasshoppers. They were about three inches long. And, uh, and they, they were not just a nuisance, they were destructive. They, would ravi- they were ravaging creatures that could wipe out an entire region's food supply. They'd show up and they would devour the fields and everything in them, the wheat, the corn, everything they could get their little mandibles on, they would destroy. And so um, they would blow in in these clouds and literally blot out the sun and land on these crops and destroy everything in their path. And people of the day didn't have insecticides and pesticides to keep the, the critters away. If they came... You're done. You're in trouble. And they can't import food easily from other areas. You don't have refrigeration. You don't have ways of keeping things shelf-stable. And so it was, for many people, a death sentence if these insects showed up. If these bugs showed up, if these, uh, if these critters showed up, they were in huge trouble. So um, in studying Joel, it appears, um, as you read it, that there's at least two particular locust plagues or attacks that he's referring to. The first one is a plague... Um, that, that happened in the past. And the second one is a plague that happens in the future. It's a prophetic uh, event. So this first reference, most scholars, pretty much everyone I, I, I research, believe that this points to a literal plague of locusts, a literal plague of grasshoppers that showed up and destroyed all their stuff. Um, it's not allegorical. It's not metaphorical. There is this literal plague that shows up, and, uh, and it says that everything the big grasshoppers didn't eat the little grasshoppers came and ate. And then there was another variety of grasshoppers. And they ate everything gone. Verse 7 says, It has destroyed my grapevines and ruined my fig trees, stripping their bark and destroying it, leaving the branches white and bare. So, as I studied, uh, I found this really interesting. I didn't know this. I'm not a big locust fan, I guess. But uh, locusts do not favor the plants that are mentioned here in that verse. They don't favor uh, grapevines and fig trees and bark and things like that. They will only attack those once everything else is gone. So they have eaten everything uh, else, all the, all the wheat and all the corn and all the barley, whatever else. And now to, they're to the point of stripping the bark off of trees. They're eating vines and things like that. Also, in the Bible, the vine and the fig are signs of security and prosperity. If you read throughout the Bible, if people have a vine, that's prosperity, that's security. If they have a fig, that's security. So they're to the point of taking their security. They're taking what, what they have as, as, uh, as really their prosperity. So this devastation is symbolic to the degree of desolation that they're bringing. They also, it says, it stripped the bark. Now, there's plant people. I know some plant people in this room. If a plant or a tree loses its bark, its outer layer, it's doomed, right? It's, it's not good for that... Uh, that organism, because it's going to die. The, that's actually a vital part of how it synthesizes its life. And so by taking the bark off the tree, you're not just killing that year's crop, you're killing future crops. You're, you're killing crops down the road. You're killing the next generation of food, the next generation of life. And so they're, they're destroying what's to come. So the land has been ravaged by this locust plague. And I'm sure for the people of Israel at the time, they had to think of what happened to Egypt. Remember the eighth plague in Egypt? And so I'm sure their minds went to the plagues of Egypt and how God brought this destruction on the Egyptians and they go, now this is happening to us? 
Us, your chosen people, the ones that you sent us on the Egyptians, and now we are having to deal with this. And so um, for them, they had to endure what the Egyptians had gone through. Then moving on to chapter 2, it goes on, and it starts to warn about the land is going to have this army of locusts that are about to attack. And this is a future invasion, but this is not a literal insect invasion. It's not a literal uh, bug invasion, but rather it's talking about this uh, day of the Lord that's coming. And we're going to talk about that a little more in just a moment, but this day of the Lord. Now listen to the verbiage Joel uses in chapter 2 as he talks about this second invasion of locusts, okay? Joel chapter 2, verse 4, he says this, They look like horses. They charge forward like war horses. Look at them as they leap along the mountaintops. Listen to the noise they make, like the rumbling of chariots, like the roar of fire sweeping across the field of stubble, or like a mighty army moving into battle. So, Many people believe, many scholars believe, he's talking about Assyria here, or an invasion force that's coming. But here's a really interesting thing, because this verse carries really striking similarities to the last book in the Bible, the book of Revelation chapter 9. There's this guy named John who has a revelation of the end times, and he talks about something. Again, copy and paste this in your mind to Joel here. Look what Revelation says, and, and, and see the similarities here. Revelation chapter 9 verse 7 says, The locusts look like horses prepared for battle. They had what looked like gold crowns on their heads and their faces looked like human faces. They had hair like woman's hair and teeth like the teeth of a lion. They wore armor made of iron and their wings roared like an army of chariots rushing into battle. So we see these parallels, these similarities. And something that's important we understand is we look at biblical prophecy. Biblical prophecy is important because uh, there's, there's layers to big biblical prophecy. Um, it's like looking, I'd use this picture of a mountain range, for example. It's like looking at a, at a couple mountain ranges. You see this closer mountain here, and then there's mountains that look like they're right behind it. But in reality, there could be quite a distance between that first mountain and the mountain range behind it, right? Well, so there's distance we don't see. And so when the prophets are writing, they're writing about events that can be immediate, which is Assyria or the immediate judgment that's coming on Israel. But they're all, he's also alluding to and speaking of the judgment of God, the day of the Lord that is coming. And so uh, the same thing happens in the book of Matthew, chapter 24. Jesus uses the same thing. He's talking about the destruction that the Romans are going to bring. Remember, there's the Jewish uprising that happens in the year 68 AD. And two years later, they are destroyed by the Romans in the year 70. And Jesus talks about that. But he also, this whole chapter ties in the end times with it. He talks about the return of the Lord and the, the, the day of the Lord and those things. So it's these two layers of prophecy that are happening in the same window. Are you following, tracking with me there? Two layers, two distances. We might not know the distance between those, but it's two particular events in the same moment of prophecy. And so um, we're seeing this in Joel. So Joel is likely seeing this Assyrian attack of God's judgment on Israel, but he's also prophesying the culmination of time, God's judgment on earth. And as we mentioned a few days ago, it's the day of the Lord. Now, it's, Joel says this is a terrifying day. It's a terrifying day. And he's warning the people, this is going to be a terrifying day of destruction. And so he says this day is coming. In verse 1 of chapter 2, he says, Sound the trumpet in Jerusalem, or in Zion. Raise the alarm on my holy mountain. Let everyone tremble in fear, because the day of the Lord is upon us. The day of the Lord. So the day of the Lord is not a literal human day, by the way. Okay, It's not a literal 24-hour day. It's not like, okay, everybody, May 14th, day of the Lord, get ready for it. Send out the Evites. It's going to be a great event. Day of the Lord. Don't miss it. 
The day of the Lord is a period of time in which God uh, interrupts human history with his judgment and his justice. It's a period of time. We don't know that length of period of time or what that is, but it's a figurative uh, use of speech to speak of a period, an era of God's judgment. And the day of the Lord, that, like I said, doesn't connotate that 24-hour period. We don't know how long it is. Uh, God's concept of time is so different than our concept of time. To, to God, who is spirit, who lives outside of the limits of our timelines and our understanding of time, time doesn't hold the same meaning to him. And, uh, and, and we know that in the book of Second uh, Peter chapter 3, uh, it says uh, that uh, a day is as a thousand years to the Lord, right? A day is as a thousand years. Man, time is flying for God. At the same time, he's in every moment of history at all times. It makes my brain hurt to think about it. And so if, if this day of the Lord we, is not a specific... By the way, I just want to mention this. This is why, it's to me, I'm not dogmatic about... And I, I hope I don't offend you with this, but I'm not dogmatic about a six literal days of creation from the book of Genesis. Because we don't understand God's understanding of time. And what's the purpose of scripture? Is it to give us a science textbook or is it to tell us about God and our relationship to him? And so I'm, I just want to say, for me, I'm not dogmatic about it. I'm not saying that I could be right or wrong, but it's not something that I say, my salvation hinges on the literal sixth day. So, in our understanding of the day of the Lord, it's not a literal 24-hour period. It is a period of time in which God's judgment will come. So, uh, God is making himself known to humanity in this time, and he's bringing his justice. And it's something that's important as we read these challenging prophets like Joel. Okay, Joel is a challenging prophet. As I was studying, I was like, oh, Brent, what have you got yourself into? Here we go. There's a lot of bugs in this one. So, but prophecy is more important for what it reveals about God than for what it reveals about the future. Fulfillment of prophecy is sure, but the message is primary. Sometimes we can get hung up on that. We've got to figure out the exact timelines of prophecy. And let me tell you, we need to be aware of the times and all those things. We need to be conscientious of that. But we cannot get so hung up on the exact fulfillment timelines and all these things as to the message that the prophet is bringing. And so what is God calling his people to do in Joel here. He's calling them to repentance. See, a day of judgment is coming, but God does not desire that anyone be destroyed. It's not his desire. The thing, the recurring theme you can see throughout the minor prophets, I mean, I could preach this message every single week of this series, is that God is not willing that any would be destroyed, that he is uh, he, he's not quick to anger, but he is uh, waiting you out to, to have you come to salvation. So that's that's the, the thrust of Joel's purpose here and but he's not willing that anyone be destroyed joel chapter 2 verse 12 says this so that is what the lord says turn to me now while there is still time give me your hearts come with fasting weeping and mourning don't tear your clothing in grief but tear your hearts instead return to the lord your god for he is merciful and compassionate slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love, he is eager to relent and not punish. He's eager. Do we ever see that the Lord is eager to punish? But he's eager to relent. Now, see, this is the important thing. It says that God is slow to anger, yet we also know God is, has wrath. There's a righteous wrath. But with our vocabulary and the way we understand things, we equate anger and wrath. But let me tell you, wrath is focused at injustice. Wrath is focused at sin. Wrath is focused at everything ungodly. 
God is not willing that his wrath come land on those he loves. He's doing everything he can. He's withholding his anger for us to have the opportunity for repentance. And he says, I'm eager to relent and not to punish. You see, there are, there are postures we can take when we are sorrowful. And he talks about this here. Uh, how many of us when we were kids had the crocodile tears so that we didn't get in trouble? Oh, I was good at the crocodile tears. My sister would tell you, Brent never gets in trouble. He's like, I'm sorry. We are good at doing whatever it takes not to get the spanking, not to get grounded, not to get whatever it is. You know, we can work up the crocodile tears. And let me tell you, uh, it doesn't change when you turn into an adult. We can, we can posture really well with sorrow and I feel bad. Um, but, but here Joel says, don't tear your clothing as a sign of repentance. You see, that's what they would do in the day. They would, their clothing is valuable. You have like one pair of clothes that you, you have, basically. And so when you tear your clothes, you're showing deep remorse because you're like, the thing I have is gone. And then you put on sackcloth. You put on a potato sack. And you say, this is how sad I am. And he's saying, God is saying, I'm not looking for you to just show an outward sign of your sorrow. I want you to tear open your heart with your sorrow. I want you to rend open your heart with how broken you are that you have, uh, that you have walked away from me. And this is the repentance I desire for you. I desire true brokenness. Do the work on the inside, not the outside. So what is repentance then? Repentance is not God wanting you to feel like a failure. Um, there was a, a quote from a movie or TV show, and I looked and looked and looked and tried to find it. Maybe someone can help me with this afterwards. Um, but it was a great quote. Someone said something along the lines of, someone really hurt their feelings, and they said, uh, do I want them to come back and apologize? Yes. But if I can make them feel really bad about themselves, I've done my job. And uh, sometimes, sometimes we're not really looking for you know, that restoration. We just want them to at least feel bad about themselves. Um, repentance is the recognition of our rebellion against God, us being grieved by it, and then changing course. Second yeah. Corinthians chapter 7 in the ESV says, As it is, I rejoice. Not because you were grieved. Everybody say grieved. grieved. That was weak sauce. <laughs> Alright, we're going to try this again. We're backing up. As it is, I rejoice. Not because you were grieved. grieved. That, oh, that was good. But because you were Grieved into repenting. So he says, you weren't just grieved, but you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. So it's important we understand. God's not looking just to make us feel grief. But he wants grief that leads us to repentance. You see, the right kind of grief leads us to repentance, which is followed by no regret. If you are continually feeling guilt and shame for something that you have truly repented of, that's not been a godly repentance. The Holy Spirit convicts, but then repentance brings us to change. And it actually leads us to life without regret. Now, now I will tell you, the enemy wants to remind you of your failure. Don't get me wrong. Just because something in the back of your mind is trying to remind you of, of, of what you had been, who you had been, all those things. Let me tell you, you are living in victory in Jesus' name. When you have repented, when you have turned your life around and you're walking the other way, there is victory in Jesus. We have the victory in Jesus' name. However... The godly repentance brings us to no regret. So the, I, I love the great philosopher Michael Scott once said. He said, society teaches us that having feelings and crying is bad and wrong. 
Well, that's baloney because grief isn't wrong. There's such a thing as good grief. Just ask Charlie Brown. But But there's a lie that's pervasive, especially, I think, in the church. And that is that feeling bad is all it takes. Um, There's a thing called Catholic guilt. And I'm not here to bash on the Catholics. But there really is a culture of if you feel really guilty, you're doing the right thing. But let me tell you, just feeling bad is not all it takes. The Bible is clear that there is a grief that produces death. So you can feel really bad and still be on your way to hell. There's a grief that produces death. The wrong kind of grief hangs over us. It's shame. It's disgrace. It's embarrassment. But the grief that leads us to repentance leads to salvation without regret. So repentance then is this. Repentance first is a change of mind. It's a change of the way we think. It's the change of our systems of thought, my priorities, the way I see myself, the way I understand that God sees me. It all shifts. There is a paradigm shift that occurs in our minds when we, when we truly repent. Romans 12, 2 says, don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. God wants to literally change the way we think, the way that our minds process and we understand the world around us. And so God wants, the first and foremost, uh, repentance brings us to a change of mind. So who transforms how we think? Us? Is Is it by having a positive mental attitude? God is the one who transforms the way we think. Sometimes we put so much pressure on ourselves, but we need to say, God, I'm leaning on you. Transform my mind. Transform whatever is good, whatever is noble, whatever is just, whatever is lovely. Think about these things, Jesus says. And when we, tr- when we have our minds transformed, suddenly it changes the areas and the things on which we let rest our mind. Amen. So it's God's work within us. It's a process of his work. Secondly, repentance is a change of direction. We no longer continue down the path that we were going. I've heard it said, well, doesn't everyone sin? Don't even Christians who have asked Jesus into their heart sin? So what's the difference? I'll just keep living my life because God will forgive me. Let me tell you something. This is not a repentant posture. Repentance is change of direction. Romans 6, verses 1 and 2. Paul says, so he's got this church in Rome, and they're going, hey, if, if God forgiving us is his grace, let's make his grace even bigger. We'll have even more for him to forgive. Let's sin a lot. And man, God's grace is going to be huge. And Paul says, well, then should we keep on sinning so that God can show us more and more of his wonderful grace? Of course not. Since we have died to sin, how can we continue to live in it? Yes, let me tell you, believer, sin is a constant battle. But when we make concessions and when we make justifications for our sin, there's been no repentance. There will always be a battle against the flesh. The Bible's clear. We battle against our flesh, right? But when we start to make concessions, when we start to make uh, uh, justifications, and let me tell you, I am excellent at making justifications for my actions. There's no repentance there. Ezekiel 14. Therefore, tell the people of Israel, this is what the sovereign Lord says, repent and turn away from your idols and stop all your detestable sins. Did you see all those key words in there? Repent, turn away, and stop. 
So repentance actually leads us to a change of direction. It's not just feeling bad. It's not just feeling guilty. But it's saying, I am no longer going in this direction. You see, uh, being in a struggle against sin is different than justifying perpetual sin. I was, I've been talking about this, right? Being in a struggle against our sin. Maybe you have a sin that you found yourself, I'm returning to this sin, but I'm fighting with all I've got. God, I need you to help me. And there's a battle going on there. There's a, a really good quote from uh, the 17th century theologian. He was at Oxford University. His name is John Owen. He said this. If you are fighting sin, you are alive. Take heart. But if sin holds sway unopposed, you are dead already, no matter how lively this sin makes you feel. So take heart, embattled saint. Sometimes we think, I am battling sin. What is wrong with me? You're battling. Keep fighting. God's on your side. Fight. But when you lie down and say, I guess that's it. This is just me. This is who I am. Then you are already dead. Fight against it. Repentance bring, brings, a, we, when we, we, we repent, it's a change of directions. We are fighting against the flesh, but God gives us victory in Jesus' name. The last thing is this. Repentance then brings restoration. And this is the awesome promise of God. You see, God responds to re, a repentant heart. And that's what Joel then transfers to talking about. You see, God was filled with compassion for his land and had pity on his people. Joel 2, 18 and 19. Then the Lord will pity his people and jealously guard the honor of his land. And the Lord will reply, look, I'm sending you grain and new wine and olive oil, enough to satisfy your needs. Jump down to verse 21. So don't be afraid, O land. Be glad now and rejoice, for the Lord has done great things. Don't be afraid, you animals of the field, for the wilderness pastures will soon be green. The trees will again be filled with fruit. Fig trees and grapevines will be loaded down once more. Rejoice, you people of Jerusalem. Rejoice in the Lord your God, for the rain he sends demonstrates his faithfulness. Once more, the autumn leaves will come, as well as the rains of spring. The threshing floors will again be piled high with grain, and the presses will overflow with new wine and olive oil. God promises, I'm going to restore what was lost. I'm going to restore what was lost. When there's repentance, there will be restoration. You see, restoration is a process that will always be visible on the outside, but it has to start on the inside. Sometimes we try to restore things on the outside, and the inside stays a wreck. And we try to make it look good, like we've, we've really turned things around, but on the inside there's still dead bones, there's still uh, rottenness. Um, but there's a process that has to start on the inside. Uh, the bane of my existence TV channel is HGTV. Sorry. No, Hosanna enjoys that channel. And I, I, okay, there's a lot of O's, but let me, hear me out. I love the thing, the projects they do on there, but, but the inspiration that comes with over a single weekend, we can transform our kitchen and change our, our, our you know, our, our, our floor plan to an open floor plan. And, and, uh, and, and there's no dust and, you know, it, it's just, all you need is a trowel and a hammer apparently. And, and it's done. And, uh. Let me tell you, when I watch these shows, though, the, what I do appreciate are the ones where they get into the guts of the house. They're like down in the plumbing and they're realizing the number of things that need to be dug out for this project to be done right. Because restoration is more than slapping a new coat of paint on a building. Yeah. Restoration goes down to the bones. Yeah. And there are internal 
renovations and renewals that need to be addressed. It's not just patching up or covering up broken things. Um, one of the things if you're ever shopping for cars is you always need to make sure it has a clean title, right? You don't want a branded title because you don't know its true history. There are companies that make a killing out there because they'll take a car that's a total, slap a new bumper on it, tidy it up a little bit, while there could be major structural issues. There could be frame problems, there could be problems with the drive line and transmission, you name it, there could be major issues, but they've polished up the outside. Let me tell you, restoration is a process that while it's visible on the outside, it begins on the inside. Secondly, is this restoration takes time. It's a process. Verse 22, it said, going back, if you have your Bibles, you can look at verse 22. It says, the pastures will soon be green. The trees will again be filled with fruit. So the people repented, but was there suddenly everything green? Was it like a Disney movie? And everything's great? It was process. It was time. It's not overnight. We might not see the full results of our repentance in a moment or even days, but we need to trust God in that process. For some of us, we have lived a life where we have been far from God and we've come back to him, we've repented and we're going, God, where are the results? You're in the process of the restoration. You may be in the process of the restoration. We need to be patient with ourselves and we need to be patient with God as he restores and he brings back to life what was dead. In Joel chapter 2, verse 25, he says, I will, God says this, I will repay you for the years the locusts have eaten, the great locusts and the young locusts, the other locusts and the locust swarm. He listed off all the locusts he mentioned in chapter 1. God says, I will repay you for the years. I love this because God's not just saying, I'm going to restore the crops and the physical things, but I'm going to repay you for the time that was lost. And for some of you, you've had time that's been eaten. Years that have been eaten by, by, by desolation, by, by things that feel like you, you, you have, uh, maybe it was time that you weren't serving the Lord. Let me tell you, the restoration, that the day of the Lord, God wants to restore everything to you. Full restoration. In what was lost, both in, in, in whatever it might be, in relationships and in uh, property, whatever those things are as you surrender to Him, but also in the time that was lost. Time is one of our most valuable assets. And here God says, I'm going to repay you for the years that the locust took. God is going to do full restoration when there's repentance. God wants to restore your life most of all. John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There is no other path to God except through Jesus. He wants to restore your life. It's not through uh, a, a great reading plan. It's not through a friendship. It's not through knowing the right people. Jesus alone is the way to full life in God. John eleven twenty five. 25, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He wants to restore your life today by re- repentance and returning to him. So right now, can we bow our heads, church, and close our eyes? We're going to take a moment. King of kings and the Lord of lords. He's in this place right now. And the very first and most important thing I want to ask you is, have you come to a full point of repentance in your life? Not just feeling grief, but the good kind of grief that leads to repentance, that leads to change. Maybe you've been going through the motions. Maybe you've been figuratively tearing your clothes. Oh, I'm so sorry. And you really feel bad, but it hasn't led to change of direction, change of heart, change of mind. 
And this morning you say, I'm ready to surrender that fully. I'm tired of playing the game. I'm ready to fully surrender to Him. If you're done playing games and it's time to surrender to Him this morning, I want you to raise your hand and raise it with conviction right now. Raise it high. Thank you. Yes. Thank you. Yes. Thank you. I see those hands. Yes. Across this room. Thank you. Thank you. I see those hands. And God sees your hand as you raise your hand. And let me tell you, he knows your heart. He knows where you stand. You say, God, I need full and complete surrender to you. As far as it it is with me, I surrender my heart to you. No longer holding on to the things that, that I want to control, but I give it all to you. And Lord, right now I pray for renewed minds and new direction. That this godly repentance would lead us to new places. So right now, church, we're going to pray this prayer. This is a prayer that echoes the position of our heart. This says, God, I repent. I am broken. I rend my heart open, not just by a show of posturing, but truly, God, you see who I am and you see my brokenness. I want a renewed mind. I want a change of direction. I want to pursue you with all that I have. And right now, church, across this room, whether you prayed this prayer before and you are serving God with all your heart or right now today you have made that decision, I want us to pray this prayer out loud, all right? Repeat this after me. Say, Dear Jesus... I believe you're the son of God and I am broken. I am sorry. I am grieved by my sin. I've gone my own way and I repent. I need you to forgive me. Wash away my sins. Make me new. Restore my mind. From this day forward, I change direction. I follow you from this day forward. In your name, amen. Amen. That prayer of repentance is a new posture. It's a new direction. It's a new paradigm. In a few moments, we're going to do our connection cards. What I ask is that you write down, mark there that you've decided to follow Jesus today because now that journey of following Jesus, that new direction has begun. We want to come alongside you in that journey of following Jesus and that victory. Last thing is this. Maybe you're in this room and you say, I need some things restored. The locusts have stolen from me. I've had things lost. In the book of Proverbs verse, or chapter 29, verse 18, it says, where there's no prophetic vision, the people cast off restraint. That actually is defined as are discouraged. And maybe you've had no vision. That vision has been stolen from you and you've had your dreams stolen from you. You say, I need fresh vision. I need fresh life. I need those things restored to me. And you say, that's me, Pastor Brent. I need something restored to me. Will you raise your hand? I want to pray with you right now. Will you raise it high? I want to pray over you. I see these hands. Yes, I see these hands across the room right now. Lord, I pray with those who are raising their hands and said, I've had something stolen from me. Maybe there's been uh, just uh, something that's outside of my control, but it feels like it's been stolen. And right now I need the God who says, I am the one who restores. I am the one who brings back fresh vision and fresh life and fresh purpose. Right now, I pray the God who brings beauty for ashes would do that same thing in this room right now. Where the enemy has sought to steal, to kill and destroy, that the God of life would inject new life into this place. I pray for victory in Jesus' name. I pray for answers to prayer that we 
never saw coming, uh, responses that we never anticipated. Lord, I pray that there would be something that comes in our mail, in mailboxes this week that we did not anticipate. I pray, God, that there would be an email that we didn't anticipate, that there would be a phone call that we didn't anticipate. I pray, God, that there would be a new life that just begins to emanate within us, that there would be people popping their heads off their pillows this week, ready to tackle a day with a new life that they had never had before, a new purpose that they hadn't anticipated, because the King of kings, the Lord of life, now indwells them and is renewing a new spring within their soul. A new life and new purpose would be uh, refurbished within them, Lord, from the inside out from the core of who they are to the outside not just a polished exterior but from the inside the innermost being of who we are would be renewed and restored in jesus name that the breath of life that the river of life would begin to flow through this church lord we pray it and we declare it in jesus's mighty and powerful and victorious name amen amen praise god praise god praise god Right now, church, what we're going to do is we're going to respond with our connection cards before we go. This is how we actually write down. How many of you ever found that writing something down kind of changes the dynamic? It changes how you understand and feel things. Uh, could I get the platform lights up a little bit? Um, so, so right now, if you will go to the uh, connect card, the digital one is our favorite way for you to do the connect card. There's also the paper ones right there. But I want us to write down this response. Is there an area the enemy has been stealing from you, that the locust has been devouring? And right now you say, God, I need some restoration. We want to pray with you for that. Um, We have our elders pray every single week at 6 a.m. on Tuesdays over all of these prayer needs. We want to agree with you that God would bring restoration to where death has been holding on. Um, Maybe there's an area that you need a victory. Maybe there's an area that you are celebrating this week that God is bringing new life. Let us know what that is because we want to celebrate that with you. Mark that on your connection card. But right now we're just going to take a moment. Go to nlcchurch.com slash connect or use the Sunday links. But if everyone would fill one out, we love it if every single person fills out a connection card. Um, Not just the person next to you, not just your cousin that's somewhere else or something like that. You fill out a connection card. It lets us know you were here. lets us know what we can be praying with you about. If you are new, let us know that this is your first time and if you have given your life to Jesus mark that down right now you can keep jamming you guys are doing so good sounds nice all right church let's stand together I'm going to send you out father I pray over this church I pray for victory in Jesus name each day we examine our hearts we surrender to you we say God I put to death my sinful flesh and I live for you Jesus so each day that we would surrender to you I pray Lord as we do as we repent live in repentance you continue to bring things to life restore to us the joy of our salvation send us out in victory we pray in Jesus name Amen God bless you in your life. Have a wonderful, blessed day.